Today, we're going to continue our series called Play Your Part. Uh, this is a storytelling series, um, and it's in part a video series. So last week, we heard uh, and saw the video from our brother Reynolds, who told his story of disbelief and depression and uh, sort of a, re a return to the church. Uh, and today, uh, you get to see the video that they made about me and my own story and my own journey. Today's sermon is, as much as I don't enjoy saying this, is mostly about me. And anybody that really knows me knows that I'm, I have a genuine discomfort for that. I do not want the story to ever be a community that revolves around one personality. I don't want to be the face of the story. If I am the face, if this is the face of the story, then we're all in trouble. If we're going to choose a face uh, for the story, let's pick one that's a little more symmetrical and, uh, you know, like attractive or whatever uh, than this one. Um, but I, the amen, thank you. That's the first amen I've gotten in a while. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, and so, um, but the reason why I agreed to today's sermon part being mostly about my story is what they say about organizations as they, as they develop and grow is that usually people are drawn to the uh, organization and the story that the leader's life has told. Like the leader's story is usually mirrored in most of the people who come to that organization and be, become a part of it. And so I imagine that the story I'm going to share with you today, my own personal faith journey, which is honest and in some ways an embarrassing story for me to tell. I'll, I'll just tell you like it is. Like I'm not going to hold back today. I'm going to tell you where I've been. And it's a little humiliating, but I'm telling it because my sense is there are people here today who are at some point along the arc of my own narrative. And you've walked where I've walked. And so what I want to say today is, because the reason you don't have study guides, is there's really just one question I want you to consider, and that is, uh, where, it, where are you in your story with God? And looking back on your history with Jesus and the church, what have you been through and where are you now? is really what I want to ask. If you're a small group leader and you're thinking, oh my gosh, we don't have study guides, what are we going to talk about? What I want you to talk about is the stories of people's lives with Jesus. Today's scripture is from Colossians chapter 2. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can follow along on the screens, but I do want to encourage you to take a Bible home with you. We have plenty that we would love to gift you uh, with one of those. And so, uh, take one home with you and, and just let that be a gift from the store to you. Uh, we're in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes in Colossians 2, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this universe, and not according to Christ. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This verse has played a tremendous role in the development of my own story, and I'm going to uh, illustrate why. Before we do that, I've got a, about a six-minute video. It's kind of a long video for what we like to do in worship usually. Uh, if you brought popcorn, now's the time to break it out, or if you smuggled snacks in, you know, get those hot tamales out of your pocket and all that now, and, uh, and uh, here we go. This is part of my faith journey uh, on the screens now. I admire people, Christians, who genuinely never struggle with doubts and questions. I envy them. I wish I had that gift of faith, but I've never been that person. And even now that I've kind of cleared up the bigger questions of who God is or whether God exists or what that means about Jesus, I still struggle all the time. 
I am a preacher's kid and a preacher's grandkid and a preacher's great-grandkid, and so I'm a fourth-generation preacher. And I had no intentions of being one, but I was steeped in it. I was <laughs> raised in it. It's in my blood somehow, and now I'm grateful for it. Well, this is me here, and I think in this picture I am 10 years old. I was raised in a really tiny town, and I loved most things about my upbringing. I think one of the um, byproducts of growing up in a small town and being so steeped in Bible Belt religion um, for all of the good qualities that come along with that. Some of the things that come along with it too are um, propensity in these churches to be unwelcoming about doubts uh, and questions. And if you ask the wrong question, you risk being alienated, really. When I was 18, I left my small town and I left my dad's church for the first time in my life. And I went away to college to explore, not just an education, but I knew I needed a place where I could ask some of the questions that I had kept below the surface for most of my life. And I landed in a couple of philosophy classes where I developed just a deep admiration and respect for the professor there. And I remember all the things he used to say about how ludicrous it is to believe the things Christians believe, that a book that was written over 2,000 years time um, by human hands was supposed to be somehow literally infallible uh, without any mistakes or contradictions. I decided at some point in my freshman year of college that I wasn't gonna be a Christian anymore because being a Christian meant being a fool or being um, less than uh, intellectual or anti-intellectual. I didn't want to be that. I wanted to think through my questions and the only people that really welcomed my deepest questions and fears and uncertainties were people that weren't in the pews on Sunday mornings. And so call it a phase or whatever you want, there was a definite season in my life that I was an avowed atheist. I think I felt betrayed. I felt like everything I had given my young life to, all the hours in church and all the abstinence and all of the not partying and not fitting in and all of it was for nothing. It was a time that was full of, full of pain and um, a sense of abandonment, I think. So this is us as freshmen in college, uh, singing show tunes with the college choir together. I think a month after this, I proposed uh, to you, and uh, little did you know that you would be engaged to someone who wasn't even sure he believed in God anymore for a while. <laughs> that was a tough time for us. When I think about my journey back to Christianity, it was uh, a, a journey of, more than 10 years. It wasn't, I wish I could say I had one of those experiences on the mountaintop with God that cleared everything up. If I'm honest, it's a journey that I'm still on. I'm still journeying back to Christianity, even though I'm a church planter and a pastor now. This was the church that started my journey back to Jesus, really. I mean, I was uh, not even really a believer when I started pastoring this church, and it sounds really crazy but these people just loved each other so completely and with no conditions and no qualifiers that they showed me what the love of Jesus is about. 
when I was a senior in college, the supervisor of this church in the Methodist system called me and said, I need you to go take care of this church for six months. And I said, I, I don't think it's a good idea. I'm an atheist now. <laughs> and he said, it's just for six months. I know your dad uh, very well, and you can just recycle his sermons if you need to. But we have a real shortage of pastors, and this church will face a crisis if nobody's there to, to lead them. And so he said, it pays uh, $16,000 a year, and it comes with a house that you and your wife can live in. And you know, I was making 12,000 a year selling diamonds at service merchandise, which doesn't even exist anymore. And uh, so I, uh, I said, okay, I'll do it. Remember how people from the church would just walk in mm -hmm. unannounced? Yes. Not even knock? Yes, uh, all the time. No matter what, <laughs> uh, that was Mooringsport, Louisiana. But, um, it was, it was an awesome experience. Most Christians would assume that I would look back on that season in my life as a, a dark time, a dark chapter in my journey. And that's not how I look at it at all. I hope every Christian goes through a season where he or she can wrestle with doubts with the same uh, authenticity and ferocity that, that I was able to during that season of my life. I, I don't regret it at all. When I look at how the story Houston developed in our first year, I see God's wisdom in it because I look at my neighborhood, Interloop Houston, and I see how badly the people who live and work around this area hunger for a place where their questions really are welcome, where they can have community, where they can make friends, where they can be accepted and know they're loved but at the same time, not have all the assumptions or religiosity of maybe a typical church experience. If we can create a culture where people know God is strong enough to shoulder their questions and God can take their criticisms and they can explore and find God and Jesus on their own terms, I think that's what God has us here to do. Here's my heart, take and see Seal it for thy comfort. Our, uh, our volunteer uh, video producer, Julie, is here somewhere. Julie, raise your hand. Julie, uh, thank you so much for your work um, with that. Uh, I don't even want to know how many hours uh, you spent on it. Ryan can probably testify, Julie's husband, to that a little later. Um, Ryan, I'll, I'll uh, take you out for a drink or something, man. A non-alcoholic, of course, because I'm a pastor. And uh, it'll, uh, it'll be great. So um, we're talking this month about playing your part. And really what we're talking about is um, the fact that church is not and never was supposed to be something you come to consume. It wasn't supposed to be a show you come and enjoy and then go live the rest of your life. The point isn't to come to church, it's to be the church, and every one of you has a part to play, a role to play in the kingdom of God as it unfolds in the world. And so we're talking about finding real tangible ways for real people to play their part. And so some of you have been thinking about teams you can join. Some of you have received those commitment cards for 2016, and uh, you're thinking about a financial investment. Others of you are thinking about how you can be in prayer for the staff and leadership of the story. All of this matters. All of it is important to the story God wants to tell with us. And I believe that something so special is happening in a place like this, and there's a reason why God is blessing this place so much, 
that the story is going to be something God uses if we let it happen to change not only individual lives, but to impact a city like Houston. If we can create a culture where people can come and know that their questions are okay, and they can be motivated to not just sit with those questions, but to deal with them and to seek answers for them and truth in the midst of their doubt, something will change. Not just now, but the, the ripple effects created by what's happening right now will outlive all of us. And the legacy we're able to leave by the grace of God will be greater than anything we can imagine. The impact something like this can happen if we play our part. So that's what we're talking about this month. Today, I want you to think about your story. I want you to pretend like I'm talking to you personally, one-on-one. And I want you to think about where you are right now with Jesus and where you've been. So if there was an arc of your story, where would you be on that arc right now? I want to ask you a question people ask me all the time. Pastor, they say, when did you get saved? When did you get saved? I get asked that question all the time, especially in Texas. Now that I moved back to Texas, a little closer to the Bible Belt, I guess. When did you get saved? And man, I wish I had a clear answer. I feel like good Christians have clear answers to that question. When did you get saved? Well, it was at the revival in 83, or it was, you know, it was on the, uh, the mission trip, or it was at the shore of whatever, Sea of Galilee, and I, I got saved. You know, I don't have a clear answer to that question. Because for me, it didn't happen once that day, that night, that year. To me, it is still happening. Like, my goal isn't to just get saved one day. My goal is to be a little bit more saved tomorrow than I am today. To be a little bit more trusting and loving in my relationship with God tomorrow than I am today and the day after that. So it's it's a process for me. And my sense is that it's probably a process for many of you as well. And, you know, the Bible allows for this. The Bible doesn't just talk about salvation in a way that it happened to you one time and then you are good. You should have it all figured out. Sometimes the Bible talks about salvation in the past tense. Sometimes Paul says we were saved by Jesus. Other times the Bible talks about salvation in the future sense, in the sense of Jesus' return. On that day we will be saved. And then there are these times that scriptures talk about salvation in the, presence, in the present tense. Paul talks to believers, like in First and Second Corinthians, where he says, through Christ, we are being saved, as though it's something that's unfolding now. And that kind of thing, I think, is more and more common for people today as we wrestle with some serious doubts and problems that we have with Christianity or religion or theology or whatever, Many of us are experiencing this process, that it's not something that God just turned the lights on one day. For us, it is kind of a two-step forward, one-step back kind of a process. It's in progress, right? So when we developed the mission statement for the story, we included two words that were debated pretty heavily by our launch team that was charged with putting a statement of purpose together. That statement is that the story Houston exists to inspire non-religious Houstonians to play their part in the unfolding story of God's love in Jesus Christ. The two words that were debated most in that sentence are non-religious and unfolding. Non-religious because we didn't want to seem exclusive toward religious people. We didn't want religious people to go, oh, I'm not wanted here. You know, that's not what we were saying. We were saying we're going to have a target. The target are people that feel far from the church for whatever reason, and we're going to aim at that target. Religious people come along and help us on that mission. But, you know, this is our aim. The other word that was bandied about was unfolding because that just seemed nebulous and strange to have in a mission statement. Mission statements are supposed to be concise and easy to understand and digest and remember 
But I wanted to include that word unfolding for that very reason, that for many of us, the story continues. Our salvation story with Jesus, it goes on, and we take steps back sometimes, and then, you know, God reveals himself again in a new and fresh way. And so I, I, I would venture to guess many of you experience salvation in the same way. When I look back on my own story with Jesus, I can identify five seasons to go with the story motif, we'll call them chapters, five chapters in my story so far. And I'm gonna go through them real quick. And I am guessing that many of you will identify with a few of these chapters. Maybe you will find yourself in one of those now. The first chapter I remember is one that I call the mountaintop. When I was, I guess my first 18 years of my life, I lived on the mountaintop constantly with God. I was innocent, I was pure, I trusted God implicitly. I was always at the church, I was the preacher's kid, I was that guy, y'all all grew up with that guy, that was me, like I was constantly at the church and the moment that worship began, I went to these youth events, you know, where they had the big band, the worship band, it was super loud and tattoos and like, you know, the beaded necklaces and all that stuff we did in the 90s. When I was in high school, I went to these events and worship was so intense, and I was so intense about it, that it almost felt competitive. Like worship with teenagers when I was growing up was almost like you either did it right or you didn't. And like, who can jump the highest in the song? And like, the minute the first song started, my hands went up. It was almost like I was a robot, you know? Like, my hands would go up and my eyes would close and I would, you know, shake my head and I would dance around and I was, uh, you know, half Pentecostal then, which was, you know, borderland for Methodist, but I was all about it, you know? And that was the thing to do. And, and if you didn't do that, then there was something wrong with your heart. There was something wrong with your faith if you didn't feel the energy, you know. And, and, uh, and I lived and leaned um, into that, uh, and, and that was uh, my experience. There was kind of a, a graduation that we would go through, like the expert worshipers, you, you know, we knew who we were, and then there were the novices over there. And, you know, like it was... You know, the, the, the girls I wanted all really liked the good worshipers. And so, like, I'd really tried harder, you know, to be. And every year at church camp, I accepted Jesus into my heart again because I'm not going to let this, my friend, you know, one-up me here. I'm going to go accept Jesus again, and I'd go back home and kind of go back to the same life I was living before. But the mountaintop experience was important for me. In retrospect, maybe it was a little manufactured. Maybe it was a little naive or shallow of me. I've shown this chart to you before, but I just love it so much, this uh, graduation chart of, of uh, hand-raising and worship. And so some of you that come from similar traditions to me will recognize some of these positions. And the idea is that this up here is the rookie level. The elbow flap is the rookie level. You can carry the TV, you know. I, I did this for a few years. You can go big screen on the, <laughs> on the TV. Uh, you know, my fish was this big. This kind of thing during the, worship, uh, during the worship songs. The idea, this is my favorite, hold my baby, hold my baby. This is, <laughs> this is hold my baby. But the idea is that you progress, you know, in your emotion and worship to, until, you know, you're totally in. It's touchdown, right? Like that's the idea. Is, and that was the, the world I lived in in the first 18 years of my life. Um, it was well-intentioned, but it was emotion-driven. Well-intentioned but emotion-driven. The mantra of my first season with God was God is good all the time, and all the time, 
God is good, man. I did not doubt it for a second. Later in life, I might respond to God is good with like, well, some of the time, you know, like whatever, when, when, when life really hit me hard. But man, those first 18 years, God was good all the time. I was emotional about God. When I was 18, I went to college. And I've talked about this season of my life quite a bit. I'm not going to bore you with the details again. This is the season, the chapter I call The Crash. Because my faith was entirely emotion-driven, I was not ready for what college was going to do to me. I wasn't ready for what a liberal arts education would present to me. In my philosophy classes, in my religion classes, professors with agendas to break kids like me down. Because I was all about emotion, I was not ready to argue the facts or the points of theology. And it didn't take much for my house of cards that I built, my hand raising and my emotion and all of that, to be just completely deconstructed by a couple of really savvy secular professors. I look back and I'm grateful now, but man, did they tear me apart. And uh, I was vulnerable to that kind of attack. And before I knew it, I was, as I said in the video, kind of an avowed, um, an avowed atheist during this season of my life. For me, after the crash, uh, Christianity became something I looked down on. Christians were anti-intellectual. Christians needed to grow up. Religion was the opiate of the poor and the vulnerable. And people that say they believe all the things Christians say they believe, all that supernatural stuff, uh, you know, they're just not intellectuals like me. I thought I was a smart guy in the room. And so whenever I went into a worship service or whatever and people were raising their hands, I just kind of rolled my eyes and I sat there through, I wouldn't even stand for the songs. I just sat there uh, in a very arrogant kind of way. This was an arrogant season of my life. It was born out of brokenness because uh, I felt betrayed by all the people that led me to believe the things that I thought I believed, that the things that had gotten broken down. And so I became the angry atheist. I hopped on my MySpace page, and I would say really mean things about Christians. If you don't know what a MySpace page is, you're under 25, ask your parents when you get home. <clears throat> kind of like service merchandise. If you don't know what service merchandise was, ask somebody over 30 uh, when you get home. Uh, you know, I would get into an AOL chat room, you know. Sometimes I'd go to the Christian room just to make fun of them and give them a hard time. Other times I would go to the atheist room just for some community, for people who believe what I believed. And I loved quoting really smart things from philosophers. I loved quoting Buddha, too, you know, because that's what you do when you're in that season of your life. You quote Buddha, and you say, no one will save you. No one shall and no one may. Only we can walk the path before us. And the, the, the mantra of this season of my life, instead of God is good all the time, my mantra was God is dead. Because I believed that it was a big game. I was led to believe that it was a hoax, that Jesus was a good guy. He was real. He existed. Even my professors acknowledged that. But he was nothing more than a guru along the same lines of other great teachers, right? So that was the second season of my life. Some of you may be there even now. This led me to what uh, I call the rebellion, which is the third chapter of my life. And the rebellion, interestingly enough, took place when I came back to the church. You heard about the phone call from that uh, uh, superintendent of Methodist churches who said, I need you to serve this church. And I said, but I'm an atheist. And he said, oh, it's fine. That's really good to know that we're under that kind of leadership. He's like, whatever, it's okay. Take this church, you atheist. And I took it. And uh, what happened 
Nothing really happened in terms of my belief system, but what I saw from that church as their pastor was people loving each other in a supernatural way. And so I still didn't believe in the supernatural stuff of Christianity. I was kind of a Thomas Jefferson Christian. I was cutting all the miracles and stuff out of my Bible and just keeping all the teachings. You know, I wanted the golden rule. I didn't want the empty tomb in, in a literal way. You know what I'm saying? And so what this church did for me is they helped me to see that at a minimum, the church can be a force for good in the world. And even though I was in this dark season of my life, I still wanted my life to matter. That's what I wanted more than anything. Just like many of you, you want to live a life of significance. You want to leave a legacy that leaves the world a better place than, than how you found it. And I wanted an outlet to make the world a better place. And I thought, okay, I can't deal with all the, the, the religious stuff of Christianity, but man, the church, the church can be a place of hope. Uh, and this little church in Louisiana taught me that with the way that they uh, loved each other. So I went to seminary. Um, I went to a very uh, far left-leaning seminary uh, at the time. And um, I love my experience there. I'm glad for my experience there. But that seminary kind of fed into that rebellion that was already happening in my heart. So a lot of what I heard at the seminary is that, yeah, the resurrection is probably a metaphor for something else. Like the church is Christ resurrected, right? That whole thing about him really coming back from the dead, ah, may or may not have happened, but, but nevertheless, Jesus was a great teacher and we should honor that with the way that we do church. And so during this season of my life, I worshiped, I guess I worshiped social justice. I worshiped the idea that the church can make the world a better place. And so you can find proof text verses in the Bible, Old and New Testament, to support your worship of social justice. Like you can find prophets saying that the world should be different, that the poor should be lifted up and the rich should be held to account. You can find Jesus saying that. You can find it throughout every part of the Bible. But the, the, the uh, sort of common understanding of Scripture is that that happens when God is the king of a people, when Jesus is the king. I wanted the social justice, but I didn't want Jesus to be the king. right? I wanted a Democrat to be the president. I didn't want Jesus to be the king at this season of my life because I was worshiping an idol called social justice without really putting the substance of scripture at the center of it, right? So I wanted social justice. I didn't want justice for me. I, I didn't want myself to have to deal with all the stuff that I had done and left undone. I wanted justice for other people. Like I wanted other people to be held to account. Uh, and, and I wanted the church to be a part of that kind of political, social uh, movement. It was well-intentioned well-intentioned, but it was misguided because Jesus uh, was not at the center of it. During this season, even though I was a pastor, I still looked down on those Christians that worshiped like I did in that first season of my life. I still thought people that were overly dramatic uh, kind of wanted just the spotlight on themselves, and I thought good worship is just thoughtful worship. Good worship, oh, this is my bells and smells chapter, right? Like good worship is like, Really good liturgy that talks about, um, you know, all the things that, that I like. <laughs> Pretty much is what it boiled down to. And uh, my mantra for this season of my life is that God is just like me. God isn't, God isn't good anymore. God isn't dead anymore. God is just like me. It was amazing how God wanted 
all the politicians elected that I wanted. Like God, God liked the same people I liked. God hated the same people I hated. Like it was amazing. God and I had so much in common. It was incredible. This season of my life, um, again, well-intentioned, but, uh, but maybe a little arrogant. Chapter four. It's what I call the return. The return. Here was my struggle. It was a very basic, simple struggle. The struggle was this. <clears throat> I'd been led to believe, and I'd come to accept, that Jesus was just a man. That the divinity of Jesus was an invention created by his followers at least two or three hundred years after he walked the earth. I was told by more than one professor that some of Jesus's politically opportunistic followers, some people who bore the label Christian, wanted even more power, and so claiming Jesus was God was a way, to, it was a power grab in the third century. This was like the time of Constantine and all that stuff. And so I was taught, many of you might have gotten the same impression in online debates and things like that with modern day atheists and agnostics, that the divinity of Jesus wasn't something that was in the Bible, it was something that was made up later. And so I struggled mightily with this. As long as I could keep Jesus a man, he was just a guru, not God. So he was to be treated with respect but not worshiped. It turned around for me when, and I am aware, painfully aware of how cliche this is for a pastor to say this, but when I visited the Holy Land, and this wasn't an emotional, I walked where Jesus walked kind of thing for me. I'm not that kind of guy. Any of you know, know me? I'm not a very sentimental person. Um, this was getting something right in my head. And so, because I went to the Holy Land with an archeologist as my guide, it wasn't something where we just visited the traditional sentimental sites. I was privy to information and evidence that most tourists are not. And some of it was really compelling. For example, we visited Nazareth and I was able to see how as early as the second century, people were already venerating Mary. This was her hometown, right? And they were already making shrines to Mary, calling her the mother of God. Mary, mother of God, second century. These are the 100s, right? And so these are people that had at least known some of the eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. Mary, the mother of God. That was compelling, but I could still explain that away in my cynical skepticism. I could still do away with that until we visited Capernaum. Capernaum was the city where Jesus called his headquarters. Jesus headquartered his ministry out of the home of Simon Peter. It was actually Simon Peter's mother-in-law's home in Capernaum near the shore of the Sea of Galilee. I visited this home. There is a big spaceship-looking church sitting on top of this home now. If any of you have been there, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Christians have built churches on top of these holy sites to protect them in times of war so that they won't be destroyed and desecrated. I was privy to um, what most people aren't inside of Peter's mother-in-law's home where we saw etchings on the walls inside Peter's house, where the first Christians worshiped and gathered to pray and strategize and plot their next moves after Jesus was gone. 
There is evidence on these walls. There is scientific archaeological evidence dating to the year 48 or so. This is about a decade after all the stuff happened with Jesus. Some archaeologists think Jesus uh, and historians think Jesus died around 37, 38. Some say 33, 34. Nevertheless, 10, 15 years after that happened, these are people who followed Jesus. These are people who knew Jesus, and they gather inside of Saint Peter's, uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house for worship, and they write on the walls. And these etchings have been dated to 48 AD, and they say things like, God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. Not, Jesus Christ is really smart. Jesus Christ is a great teacher. Jesus Christ is the best rabbi ever. No. God, Jesus Christ. And I couldn't for the life of me, as much as I wanted to in my own skeptical frame of mind, I couldn't figure out why people who were plotting some kind of a cover-up would say something like this. What would compel them to claim this man was not only a great leader and teacher, but was God in the flesh? I couldn't reconcile that historically. And so I realized we all have a choice to make about Jesus. And I've talked about this some already. Please just know that this choice, there's nothing really that matters more than the choice we all have to make about Jesus. Either, either the uneducated Jewish fishermen and prostitutes that followed Jesus around, either they orchestrated the single greatest hoax in human history, either we are fools along with billions of other human beings before us giving in to this conspiracy that gave power to Peter and all those other guys, this lie, this hoax, either that happened or Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God uniquely God incarnate. All I'm asking you is to wrestle with that question. Answer that question. Everything else will flow from your answer to that question. For me, on the shoreline of Capernaum, it became obvious that Jesus was who he said he was. Now, did I still have questions? Did I still have doubts about some of the other things related to Christianity and the church and religion? Absolutely. I'm still pretty sure Jesus was not a big fan of religion and religiosity. I'm, I'm comfortable saying that still. But having that big question of Jesus cleared up gave me a foundation on which to build. That's what I'm asking you to do. My mantra in chapter 4 was Jesus Christ is God. Which gets me to the chapter I'm in now. It's not the last chapter of my faith journey, I hope, but it's a chapter called Back to the Mountaintop. This is the chapter I'm in now, and I still have those doubts and questions, but I have the foundation on which to build the rest of my faith. Yes, I still shudder when Christians do things and say things that hurt and destroy people, that shut people out, that behave in ways that Jesus would shudder. Yes, I still struggle with doubts and fears, but, but I have this foundation of belief now. I believe that Jesus was who he said he was. I believe now that Jesus walked the earth 
and not only taught people amazing things like love your enemies and pray for those who hurt you, I believe that Jesus took a punishment that none of us can imagine for a crime he never committed. And I believe that he hanged there on the cross, bleeding and naked and humiliated and beaten. And he looked at the ones who put him there and drove the nails in his hands and feet and said, I forgive you and I love you. Father, forgive them. I believe that Jesus unleashed a movement of fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors and average ordinary people that changed the world like no other movement ever has. And I believe that story is just beginning as the world continues to be transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I believe these things to be true about Jesus now, and so it's easier for me to deal with some of the other peripheral questions that I still, um, that I still wrestle with. Maybe most importantly, I believe that it's more plausible than not that Jesus rose from the grave. I have no other explanation for why we sit here today, for why three billion humans worship God and Jesus Christ this weekend around the world. And I believe that event itself split time in two. Now when I worship, this funny thing happens. This thing that five years ago I never would have thought would happen whenever I worship Johnny and Brianna play their songs or whenever I'm at home and my song comes on, you know. This weird thing happens with my hands. In my hands, it's like they defy gravity or something. <laughs> my hands inexplicably start to rise again. It's not mechanistic like it was before, like the minute he plays the first, you know, chord, I'm like, woohoo! No, it's not like that. Sometimes I'm not in it. Sometimes I don't feel like raising my hands. For whatever reason, that's okay. But sometimes I can't help it. Because I think what happens is that our bodies embody what's happening in our hearts. Our bodies sort of, uh, you know, uh, reveal what's going on inside of us. And some of you... Some of you will go to like a Texans game and they're like, oh, and 12, and they score a touchdown and you're like, woohoo! And you come to church and you're like, mm. what, what I'm saying is that at this point in my life, I can't keep my hands in my pockets anymore because I've wasted a lot of time worshiping things that are not worthy of my worship. I wasted some years giving my affection to things that will never love me back, worshiping the attention of others, worshiping popularity, worshiping sex, worshiping money, worshiping acclaim and success. None of that ever meant anything. And where I am at this chapter in my life is at this realization that there's one person that's worthy of my deepest affections. There's one person that's worthy of my worship, and that's Jesus, who is who he said he was. And this is coming from a recovering, agnostic, atheist, skeptic, cynical person. I believe Jesus is worthy of your affection as well that when you put Jesus at the center of whatever your life looks like, everything else will make more sense. 
Because when you accept that Jesus is who he said he was, your life falls into place. Things have more purpose. You realize that your life means something to God. It means enough that God will put on flesh and come and walk among us. This is the story we're telling at this church. We're telling it in a way that's approachable to people who may have deep doubts and questions, people who may have been hurt by the church or bored by the church in the past. We believe God has something to say to the city of Houston right now. I'm praying for you that you will step forward with courage and play your part in the story God's telling here. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for using us to leave a legacy that matters. I pray for each person here for the questions and doubts we have, that you would be made known in a new way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.